0: Hebrews part 51. The hand of God in the work of your enemies. The text is Hebrews 12, verses 3 to 11. Hope you have a Bible in some form or another. Hebrews 12, 3 to 11. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself... The hymn is Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So thinking about this keeps us from growing weary or faint-hearted. That's, that's good to know. Verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. These people are being persecuted. These... Um, Hebrew uh, believers, Christians who have left uh, Judaism to follow Christ... ...and now are experiencing intense persecution from the Jewish community... ...to bring them back under the old covenant. We've studied that. Hebrews 10, some have been taken from their homes. Some have been imprisoned. So they're struggling. And he says in verse 4, In your struggle, these people, against sin... ...you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood... And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Quote, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary. So he's talking about being weary or faint hearted in verse 3. Now he addresses it again in verse 5 nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves chastises every son whom he receives it's the end of the quote from proverbs verse seven it is for discipline that you have to endure god is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline if you are left without discipline in which all have participated so now sons daughters he makes clear his intention Then you are illegitimate children, not sons. If you have the really old King James Version, there's a word there that we don't even say in church for illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 9, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits? It's an interesting title for God. Subject to the Father of spirits and live. For they, that's our earthly parents, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good. And then He defines what that good is it's not my comfort, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray. Help us through this text, inspired by your Holy Spirit, to provide an antidote to weariness to faithful followers, through struggles. We want to be faithful. And so come and take this truth, guard us from error, apply it to our hearts, let it bear fruit in our lives that remains for a long, long time after this service is over. In Jesus' name we all pray, amen. We've just studied, we've been away for this now for two Sundays, but we had just finished studying... Two of the most famous verses, not only in the letter to the Hebrews, but in the whole New Testament. Those first couple verses of Hebrews chapter 12. Such, uh, they have just this resounding ring to them. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, perfecter of our faith. And just, just the magnificent phrasing... It it sounds affirming. It sounds majestic. Those words, just about everybody knows them. They resonate. Looking to Jesus. More familiar in the old King James. The author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was... And we just know those wonderful words. Our text starts in verse 3. And it starts with the same idea. But it points in a slightly different direction. We're being... ...told less poetically, more bluntly, just to consider him. Consider him, verse 3. But, but this consideration is a bit different from the looking to him as founder and perfecter of our faith. This is a consideration actually not, first of all, about our faith... ...but about his endurance to opposition... At verse 3, we're, we're reminded of the, how can I put it? The relational conflict that existed between our Lord and the sinful culture that he came to redeem. The, the contradiction. In fact, that word, contradiction, is, is the word, the translated of the old King James... They actually placed in that third verse, if you look at it in the KJV, for, for consider him that endured, and here it is, such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint. That's interesting, isn't it? Faint in your minds, weariness. So I looked it up. Dictionary is a great way to study the Bible. Contradiction. A direct opposition between things compared. An assertion of the contrary or the opposite. Think about that. This is what we're being called to consider in today's text. Consider him that endured such contradiction... This is how our writer describes Jesus in contradiction to the culture he came to redeem. And so what we need to do what we need to do now is examine why our writer takes his readers, including you and me, in this particular direction. Why does he begin wrapping up his letter? We're coming to the end. You never thought we'd get there, did ya? He starts wrapping up his letter, mining the meaning of the contradiction, the the polar opposite tension between our sinless Lord and his sinful culture. That's what I want to look at this morning. Point number one. I reworded a couple of these this morning. So if they aren't exactly the same, I didn't change the meaning at all. It's just little variations. Point number one, it's easy to study our Lord's wonderful ministry to his surrounding culture without giving equal attention to that culture's response to his words. In the ESV, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I, this is a new subject to me. Well, that's not true. It's a new emphasis that I've seen in this text. Most of us, when we think of spiritual growth and discipleship, we've been trained, and it's, it's a good emphasis, we've been trained to think in terms of Christ-likeness. And so what we do is you you dig into the life of Jesus. I want you to think about this third verse for a minute. What, What our writer is saying is profound and frequently missed. If you study the words and deeds of our wonderful Lord, only as a study of what Jesus was like in himself... You will never end up considering what our writer tells us to consider in this verse. Let me me come at it from a different angle. In a real sense, in this verse, our writer isn't asking us to consider Jesus. What we're being asked to consider is the culture's response to Jesus. Do you see that in that verse? Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. It's not Jesus' character we're being asked to study. It's the cultural kickback that we're being asked to study. Our writer is demanding consideration not just of what Jesus did but the reaction to what Jesus did, and our writer's words are pretty striking because he actually have the to the nerve to say that there is no way to fight weariness. See this, right there, so that you may not grow weary or faint heart. Well, how do we? How do we not grow weary? Is it just studying what Jesus was like? No. There's something else you have to study. What? You have to study how people reacted to Jesus... ...if you don't want to grow weary in your Christian walk. How does that work? You fight spiritual weariness... ...not just by looking at the wonderful things Jesus did. You fight spiritual weariness... ...by remembering that the... ...love... ...power... ...grace mercy, wondrousness of Jesus, you study the fact that that almost always brought hostility in response. In fact, if we just look at the wonderful things Jesus did in isolation from the hostile response he received, not just on the cross... But from the culture around him, if we just look at the wonderful things he did in isolation from the hostility he received in response, here's what's going to happen. We're going to grow weary because we will find it all that much more surprising and irritating when we try to be like Jesus and we don't get a good response from our culture. We, if you don't think about the hostility that Jesus received, in spite of his wonderfulness, if you don't consider the hostility he received from his culture, this is what our writer is saying, then you're going to be surprised when you receive the same kind of treatment from culture. Do you get it? So that's what he means by don't grow weary. Think about the kind of abuse Jesus received in spite of all the wonderful things he did. Because if you don't study that you're going to think that you won't be on the same ride and you won't face the same kind of response and you're going to be shocked that people don't treat you all that well either for your devotion to Jesus. That's the thrust of that third verse. Okay, point number two. Is that the time? Oh, man. Point number two. Most people don't depart from the faith for intellectual reasons. I still want to talk about that third verse. Let me clean it up a bit. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself... ...so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So the important words are almost always when you study the Bible... The important words are, the look for the connectors in a sentence. The connecting words. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, and then these connectors. So that. Why why am I doing this? Well, it's so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is our writer's way of saying, here's the reason I'm insisting you think about the contradictory pressure faced by Jesus constantly from his culture. You need, Don, you need to consider this all the time. Why do I have to think about that? So that you won't get worn out as you follow Jesus in the same kind of world. You you tracking? So in other words, we're being told how Christians usually wear out. We're being told how Christians usually grow weary. How they become, there it is, how they become faint-hearted. How does that happen? And the way it happens, we're told, is we don't expect enough cultural rejection. That's what makes Christians give up. That's what makes Christians grow faint-hearted. We don't expect enough cultural rejection for our devotion to Jesus. We don't expect enough of a contradictory relationship with the culture around us. And the reason we don't expect it is we have studied virtually everything about Jesus except... He was almost universally rejected as he walked this earth. Has someone told you that recently about Jesus? Not just on the cross. So, Christians study the Sermon on the Mount. We study the atonement. We study the resurrection from the grave. We study the miracles. We study the compassion. We study the outreach. We study the divine human nature. We study virtually everything there is to know about Jesus, except... None of that removed the cultural hostility that he received. And that, says our writer, that's why Christians weaken and burn out and quit and give up. Think about it. We know this is true. How many Christians do you know? There might be a few. But how many Christians do you actually know who left the faith because someone conclusively proved that Jesus never rose from the dead? I don't know any. Now, how many people do you know? Maybe you're related to some. How many people do you know who wore out in terms of loyalty to Jesus because... Because of the appeal of friends they didn't want to lose. Or the embarrassment they received on campus. Or the fear of being considered out of touch. Or the label of being called intolerant. There's dozens of Christians who have walked away for those reasons. Just so there's no confusion here. There is no cultural rejection to our showing the love of Jesus. This can be done with no words at all. You don't have to say anything to show the love of Jesus. And the whole church is called to participate in showing the love of Jesus passionately. But there's no cultural hurt in it. People generally love to see anyone, Christian or atheist... Feeding the poor, building health clinics, promoting clean drinking water... ...training in literacy, providing shelter for refugees. When Christians do these things, everyone stands and applauds. There's no problem that. No cultural hurt in showing the love of Jesus. And that shouldn't surprise us at all... ...because everyone loved to see Jesus doing those same things. Healing the sick, feeding the hungry... Opening the eyes of the blind. Blessing the children. Everybody loved it. The the, the problem, of course, is this is not all Jesus did. And it's not all the Christian church is called upon to do either. The problem comes comes with the words of Jesus. That's the problem. It's some of the things he insisted on. It's some of the things he warned about. It's some of the things he insisted we say to. If we're going to use the name Christian or church at all. The problem arises because every Christian and every authentic church is called upon. Get this, if you get nothing else this morning. Every Christian and every church. You all with me? Is called upon to do three things. Remember them. First, every Christian, every church is called upon to show the love of Jesus. It's not optional. This can be done without words, and it carries no cultural cost at all. You will be admired and embraced. Secondly, every Christian and every church is called upon to proclaim the gospel of redemption through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. This is where the cultural hostility heats up. It takes, it demands words. Your deeds by themselves can never explain who Jesus was. The Trinity, the incarnation, the resurrection from the dead. You need sentences. Sentences. And third, don't forget this one, every Christian and every church is called to defend the gospel against other options of divine rescue. Because the gospel isn't the only message on the cultural table. There's a whole bunch of options. It's a smorgasbord. So we're called to expose error, Paul says. We're to contend for the gospel. We're called upon to lovingly tell lost people they are wrong with some of the assumptions they hold. And this is where cultural rejection is always the strongest. So, just to recap. Our writer assumes if if we are saying what Jesus said... We will experience the same cultural hostility. And he tells, us, he tells us, Cedarview, in Newmarket, you people, you need to think about the way they treated Jesus. Because if you don't, there's only one option. You're going to grow weary and faint-hearted as you follow the Lord. You're going to wear out. Point number three. These cultural pushbacks, now this is worded a bit differently. That's not their fault, I did it. Cultural pushbacks, that kind of hostility, they're not only difficult, but they cause us to become spiritually obtuse and forgetful. I get that in Hebrews 12, 4 to 8. I've got to pick up the pace here, I guess. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And, this part. Have you, here's the important word, forgotten. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Proverbs, the quote. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Now here are some of the truths that are trials and the hostility and the rejection. Some of the truths that these things can make us forget. I have three. So, A, our cultural struggles are not unique to us. They can make us forget that. And they aren't as severe as they have been throughout history. So so the idea here is, you know, there's pushback, there's rejection, I lose friends, I'm not highly thought of, I'm called names, uh, there's an isolation, there's a loneliness, there's a frustration. And the idea is, it's, those things can make, oh man, this following Jesus is really hard. It's really hard being a Christian. And and you get all kind of turned in 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 here it's easy to imagine that i hear that all the time pastor don nobody understands what i'm going through well and i don't mean to make light of what you're going through it might be something very major but but the idea that no one else understands that's just a mistake and this is the reason for our writers Quick reminder, let me pull it out of that verse so it stands out a bit more. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And of course, what he's doing in that verse is he's calling their minds back to something he said in chapter 11, right here. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. Here's a a juicy one. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So he says to these people, "I, I know what you're going through is rough, but people have gone through rougher. And what he's saying is this, is, this is the history of followers of Jesus. Where did you ever get the idea you were exempt from this? This is what it's always been. The second thing that we can become blind to. As our trials increase our discomfort, they can distract our attention from the truth of God's word. Regarding his plan and purpose, so so he's saying. Sometimes the the hostility from culture, the cultural pressure, the kind of isolation or threat that comes from following Jesus passionately in a culture like this, sometimes it can outweigh your remembrance of divine truth. That's why he says. He says. Um, And have you you forgotten the exhortation? This is interesting, isn't it? That addresses you as sons. My son, do not lightly regard the discipline of the Lord. They didn't see the Lord in all of this stuff. Stuff they were experiencing. They, they, saw, they saw their family members persecuting them. They, they saw the surrounding culture persecuting them. They saw religious persecution for their commitment to Christ. Just like you would receive in many parts of the world today. But they didn't see God in it. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom, whom he receives. The biblical truths... Here's a lesson. The biblical truths needing the most mental repetition are the truths that have to um, push their way through my present discomfort. Those are the ones that are hardest to remember. That's the anguish in our writer's heart as he asks, have, have, you forgotten, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you? Interesting, his view of Scripture. Those words from Proverbs were written centuries before this. But his view isn't that they are just Solomon's words. His, his view is, see, this is the Holy Spirit. These words are speaking to you. This book, you pick it up and read it, it's, it's, it's a speaking book. That's the Holy Spirit. It talks. It addresses you. Have you forgotten it? He doesn't mean that they've become unaware that those verses exist. He, he means that those words from Proverbs, well, they've let the weight of those words diminish as their own present discomfort in, increased. So he says, are, are you remembering those words as you battle against Weariness and faint heartedness. So, the, the truth from God's word that didn't seem obvious to them in the heat of the moment, but the truth is the rejection, the hostility that they are experiencing out of their devotion to Jesus, those things aren't a sign that God has either forgotten them or is rejecting them. They're present hostility from their culture is a sign that God is receiving them whom he receives there's something of a teaching moment right here for all of us because because almost every worship song every poster every podcast every bestseller will usually speak of God's love in terms of his embrace his comfort. All of which is true enough. There is something that is naturally responsive to soothing, loving reminders of our Father's tender heart toward His children. But that's not what our writer's talking about. Our writer reminds us, if we consider father God's love for us only in terms of a hug we will be confused at much of his sovereign work in our lives we'll miss what he's doing we will not identify or recognize a big big chunk of his most precious loving work on our behalf not in making us comfortable But in making us mature and strong and spiritually developed and Christ-like. The trying of your faith, Peter says, it's like purifying gold. You ever seen them do that? It's hot. (laughs) It's intense. It doesn't happen in the prayer room by itself. The lesson here... Boy, the lesson here is God has many different ways to keep us from becoming weary and faint-hearted, many of which go beyond merely embracing us, that our Father's love is deep and multifaceted and infinitely wise and long-term. Okay, remember where we are in this text. I'm almost done. We're considering the two things that our struggles can make us slow to remember. We can forget that we're merely participating in this procession of most believers throughout history. It's not unique to us. And secondly, we can forget that our struggles are a sign of God deeply receiving us, not abandoning us. Point number four In all of our present struggles, we must remember the kind of work Father God is deepening in our lives. Look at 9 and 10. Besides this, he's going to try and explain this more, and the only way he can think of doing it is talking about our earthly parents. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to, I want to talk about this phrase, the Father of Spirits and live? For they, our earthly parents, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, this is God, disciplines us for our good, period, that we may share in His holiness. And if you look carefully, you can immediately spot the contrast that our writer is painting in these really carefully worded verses. He says, earthly fathers engage in discipline as it, as it seemed best to them. That's right there. Take note. This doesn't mean that what they did was necessarily best for us. Most of the time it probably was but they made mistakes. That's what he's saying. They did what seemed best to them. And if they exercised poor judgment, even with the best intentions, then they were probably more destructive than helpful in situations like that. So even terrible parents can still be doing mistakenly what they think is best. The reason he goes down this road is he wants to make the contrast. Not so with our Heavenly Father. That's why he's called, I said here, the Father of Spirits. This is the only place in the whole Bible where that term is used. And it's used to remind us that God deals perfectly in the spiritual realm. So God doesn't just do what seems right to him, like our earthly parents. Everything he does is absolutely, positively, objectively for our good. Verse 10. Always for our good. Doesn't matter whether we feel like it's for our good or not. Everything God, everything God does is for our good. Say that with me. Everything God does is for our good. if we understand the divine purpose in our struggles, if we don't misread our discomfort, Father God is going to use everything to make me holier. Without fail. Every time. That relates to the very last point, and I'm not kidding this time. Point number five. Always give God the benefit of the doubt. I can't give you better advice to live the rest of your life by. Always give God the benefit of the doubt. You will not always understand what God is doing, but always give God the benefit of the doubt. Wait for his timing. Last text. See that? For the moment. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so, again, our writer paints the contrast between two vantage points. If you look at the struggle, the hostility, the persecution, the rejection, the price you have to pay... If you look at the struggle of the moment, you will only see pain. You will only see unpleasantness. Everybody's picking on me. Many times we are outnumbered by the mocking voices of our culture. Many times there will be a price to pay. Breaking relationships that take you away from your devotion to the Lord. That hurts. Many times we feel the loneliness. Frequently we feel the cultural embarrassment. There is absolutely nothing pleasant in the moment, he says. But God doesn't reveal his purposes in the moment. He works through our struggles. See this, peaceable fruit? Are you working in your garden yet? It's too soon, I'm telling you right now. He works through our struggles, the hostility. He works through that the way a gardener grows fruit. And you don't see what's best in your garden until it's growing. You've got to wait. This is always what the Bible talks about when it talks about our faith being like gold. Worth all efforts to have it purified. God is training us through all our struggles he is bringing us in close. He's not rejecting you. He is receiving us 12:6. He's training us for days still in our future that we don't even see yet. Such is our loving father's discipline, through cultural hostility. Let me say this: This is not going to last forever. There are two places where God's discipline in our lives will come to an end. The first is hell, because there will be no maturity, purification, or growth in hell. The second place where it will no longer be needed is in heaven, because John says when we see him, we're going to be just like Jesus. Unfortunately, we're right between those two things. And in this moment... In this moment, think about Jesus. Don't just think about him walking on the water. Think about the fact that he was almost universally treated in a hostile fashion by the culture he came to love and redeem. Don't let that slip out of your mind because, says our writer, that will keep you from growing weary when it happens to you too. And you're all thinking, not my favorite topic, Pastor Don, but I needed to hear it. Everyone say amen. Amen. Let's pray.